What is up, Brad fans? How are we all doing? And I hope you are, in fact, Brad fans, because we are going back to the original, back to what started it all almost three years ago, two Brads talking about science. That's right, my esteemed co-host, Brit Brad, British Brad, is back for this episode, and we took a break from Corona, so don't expect too, too much Corona. Obviously, we had to address it a little bit off the top, but uh, no, we're back to what we're doing, what we do, doing what we love to do, and that is bringing you weird science stories that we find throughout the course of our regular uh, forays into the into the science news, uh, and, you know, bringing those to you. So we'll, you'll hear about uh, some disease stuff couldn't leave uh couldn't leave the disease world completely we'll talk about some new memory pathways that were found uh why are dogs noses wet and cold uh a study about traffic jams modeling traffic jams and miracle hangover drug bet you didn't see that coming could be of use for some of you who are making it through quarantine any way you can so uh hope you enjoy it Folks, uh, as always, please do rate, subscribe, comment to us on wherever wherever you're getting your podcast, wherever you're getting this podcast. I have seen that some of you have done that, and thank you very, very much for doing so. Also, uh, reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram, at 2 brad for you the same handle for both accounts, at 2 brad for you uh, Let us know what you think of the show, comment, um get in touch, whatever it may be, um, and like I said, hit that subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts, it really helps us out, uh, and having said all that, having plugged all that, let's get into it. Hello, welcome listeners, welcome, uh, saying be rad at me, but I don't know who that is, I'm, I'm going to get back to calling you Flash, welcome Flash, how are you? Pretty good, my friend. Pretty good. Uh, maintaining safe distances from everyone, uh, including my wife. Uh, well, that's not by choice. That. Yeah. That's not by choice. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, we're good. We're good over here. How are How are you doing on the island uh, fortress? Yeah, yeah, surviving. Obviously, we, you know, we dabbled, and we're just to we'll just tell the listeners we're not going to dive into coronavirus. Today. I think everyone's had enough of that. Um, and yeah. it'll be with us for weeks to come, so we can always pick it up. Um, but yeah, no, not been too bad. Obviously, you know, as an island, we we try to do things a little bit differently and try to hold herd immunity to kick yeah. things off. And that what that seemed to do is just thin the herd rather than actually confer any sort of immunity. So <laughs> yeah. we quickly ditched that scheme, um, and now it's you know really paying dividends for us. Um, but yeah, otherwise good. Obviously, as a show, Flash, we've been socially distancing for quite a while because we're what at least yeah. five hundred miles between us. So at least. Yeah, so you and I are perfectly safe, and I've got antivirus software on my laptop that I'm using to stream and record this with, so I'm hoping that will mop up most of the things, but I'm all over this. Well, we're not using 5G, right, and that's really what's transmitting the, the, the virus, so we're safe. Yeah, we could do a whole episode on dumb bastards of the world, hopefully none of them are our listeners. I would hope not, I think our listeners are a more educated bunch. Um. But, you know, let's see. Maybe, anyway, maybe not. Tweet but, at us and, and let us know. Yeah, yeah, let us know. And hopefully listeners, you're all safe and, you know, 
although we're trying to make light of the situation, obviously it is serious. So, you know, please heed the advice, stay safe. You know, mm-hmm. we don't have that many listeners as it is. Christ knows we don't want to lose any. So oh, you know, could you imagine? Yeah. Wash your hands, <laughs> stay indoor, you wrap yourself in cotton wool that's been doused in bleach, I would hope. Yeah. Uh, keep yourself self listeners because we've invested a lot of time and effort into getting you, you know, to lose you to some poxy pandemic virus would be a real kick in the balls. So it'd be a real shame. And so then if you do get it, we just ask that you then tell at least two to three people about the show. From so a safe, whoever... safe social distance, so flash. Because yeah. we don't want to then yeah. spread the virus and kill other listeners. Well, if you're going to be spreading the virus, just spread the show along with it yeah. is all I would say. We, we can only dream that our popularity would spread as fast as this virus flash. <laughs> That's basically the dream, isn't it, really, for you and I? Yeah. we've been working on it you know what i saw the other day before we get rolling here i got one more thing you know a little trip down memory because we're approaching 50 episodes i thought uh, we already at 50 episodes I, I had a party three weeks ago for 50 episodes do we not have 50 episodes no i don't think so yet by our official what we've labeled numbered episodes although we've done I've done a few yeah, different don't, episodes. Yeah, so. don't, don't say we. I, I get I get quite a lot of abuse from a couple of the listeners saying, well, have you given up on the podcast? Because Flash seems to be, to be, it's no longer too Brad for you. It's just Brad for you is what it is. <laughs> and it is Brad. It is very Brad for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, we. It, it's the numbering scheme is a little off, but we're going to be approaching 50. But also the other day I was recording an episode without you and noticed that it was almost three years to the day that we started this little thing so i think it was like april 4th somewhere in there beginning of april 2017 we started this little venture and look where we are well you know it maybe 10 listeners yeah at at best and you know i always listen back to the episodes so you know you take (laughs) one off of that Um, and i actually download it onto three of my devices just to push so actually we're probably just you and I flash. I don't think anyone's probably listening to this, but you know, yeah, yeah. you and I are effectively, I am legend right now <laughs> broadcasting to nobody in the vain hope. There's somebody still alive out there listening. Dude, we've been practicing for this pandemic for three years, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll continue for another three years. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, let's get back then to what we, what we do best, what we've, you know, honed over the last three years, we've honed this craft of talking about different science stories in, uh, in a way that makes us seem somewhat informed and hopefully somewhat entertaining. Uh, again, we have no listeners, so we'll never know. However, uh, jumping from, you know, the giant elephant in the room that we said we're not going to hammer on too much about, let's talk about our second favorite disease. Ooh, herpes. Yeah, sorry. I, gen- I, genuinely was, I genuinely was not expecting that. <laughs> well, that's what they all say, Flash, when they get it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was going to say Ebola got pushed to, oh. to number two in our ranking because of you know. I didn't even know Ebola was still a thing. Is that still a thing? Alas, it is. Unfortunately, okay. so the. What it, what it was what was it the North Kivu Kivu outbreak so the one that's been going on in Cong in Congo for probably what like a year and a half now yeah. or just yeah. a, just over a year or something now um, we obviously obviously had been following it and it had more or less died down in the last beginning of the year to sort of February March they were really 
the case numbers were dropping. It was really positive. Everything was positive. It was heading in the right direction. And I think um, that it was if they got to April 12th, maybe 14th, somewhere around there with no new cases, then they could officially declare the outbreak over. And then in the last couple of days, you know, it's the 14th, right? No, it's the 13th right now. Um, there's been a couple cases, so two cases. Uh, so that's unfortunate. The outbreak there continues. Um, and so just a, you know, a reminder that not all, you know, not all other outbreaks, are, other outbreaks are still. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think it just kind of goes to, to show too that, um, you know, that we'll, we'll forget about a lot of things because of the current situation, which is not a good thing because some of these, as, you know, Corona moves into Africa and India and other parts of um, South America and stuff, there's going to be a lot of competing factors going on, which could make Corona a lot worse. So it's something to keep in mind. And I think it's like something that I would hope that would come out of this whole situation is just like greater awareness of these things, you know, and that our we need to work together. Countries need to work together to figure out, you know, treatment. Any one particular country there, Flash, with that? <laughs> There's a few I could name. There's a few you could name. But uh, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think for me, what would be interesting, and as we touched on before we started recording, you just touched on there, and you know, a lot of things are going to change from this point going forward in the world. And I think it'll be interesting to look back on Ebola numbers and things and other disease things to see. We'll have, have the measures that we've taken to control coronavirus actually have a knock on a, a positive knock on effect, hopefully, mm. on the spread of Ebola or other illnesses, you know, because I think we are going to see that, you know, the socially, social distancing or you know, whatever it's called where you're from. Um, it's certainly, it's certainly, well, I know different countries call it different places, don't they? So different things. So, yeah. But it'll be interesting, I think, to look back, you know, when, once we've done the, the post-mortem on everything coronavirus related, you know, what what's the knock-on effect? You know, has we seen other illnesses, you know, be limited in their spread because of that? And I think Ebola will be a, a key one. Obviously, it seems a lot more virulent the way it spreads mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to coronavirus. But Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Ebola is harder to catch, but it's way more deadly. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a good point. I wonder how, you know, how this will affect flu. Well, flu season's kind of over in our hemisphere, but maybe in the Southern hemisphere, uh, you, that kind of thing. But it, I, I mean, the other thing, you know, look at the other way is that what, how many diseases are going to be made worse because of this kind of stuff, you know, and right. that's, and that's kind of goes into the more chronic illnesses rather than the infectious diseases, but I mean, infectious diseases as well. Uh, and so that brings us to sort of the first, you know, story that we have today, uh, which is also about infectious disease. Oh, smoothly done there, Flash. If you know, who would have who would have thought that this show would talk about diseases? Yeah, well, and the, but the right diseases, not the one that we're all being overrun with. Right, new diseases, yeah. diseases you've never heard of. As we Things said, other like, diseases are out there, listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things like. Uh, I can never pronounce this one. Well, not things like that then. <laughs> chikungunya virus. Chikungunya. You're just making shit up. Gunya virus. No, 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 no. It's um, it's related to semliki forest virus. 
oh yeah now you're really digging yourself out of this hole aren't you <laughs> why do you choose a disease you can actually pronounce to research by oh hey i don't i don't choose them by the name i choose them based on the uh the interest how interesting they are uh and the interesting part about this story is that okay, these hold on, hold on, hold on. give us the virus give us the disease names again flash because I, I feel as if i've taken the piss a little bit and distracted the listenership and the listenership are going to want to hear you say this again so i'll be quiet oh, yeah. I'll, they'll get the names again. Okay. Basically, we're talking about mosquito-borne diseases. So this is what we're, you know, this is this bit of research is about using a skin cream that's already used for several other applications uh, in order to help reduce the amount or reduce the chances of getting uh, an infection from a mosquito bite, a viral infection from a mosquito bite. Okay. So we have this cream. There's this cream that you can get. Uh, normally, you would get You're it. Plugging if, this cream, are we getting sponsored by this? And I'm not being told. Is this, is this another one of those backhanded cash situations that I'm getting get to see any cut? No, uh, okay. not yet. But okay. I believe the I believe the 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 brand name of the cream is Aldera. Uh, I'm just struggling to find the actual medical name. But here's the kicker: it's usually used to treat genital warts and wow. or certain types of skin cancer so there you go so is it an antiviral cream then or basically yeah because genital warts usually caused by a virus uh skin cancers can also be caused uh by viruses and basically what they looked at was whether this could sort of activate the immune system in skin cells after a mosquito bite so oh, so it's after. So it's not preventing the bite. No, it's not preventing the bite. It's after. So, and what the the sort of you know one of the guys that conducted the research, it was done at the University of Leeds. So this doctor Stephen Bryden, um, his quote on it is that by boosting the immune system and not targeting a specific virus, this strategy has the potential to be a silver bullet for a wide range of distinctive or distinct mosquito-borne viral diseases. Um, and I want to point out that, like he says, boosting the immune system. But I've mentioned several times on this show that if you see products out there that are saying they can boost your immune system, it's bullshit, which it is. It's just poor language. But basically, you're activating the immune system. Um, and so how they did the research, this is kind of the interesting part, too. So they looked at these different um, mosquito-borne diseases. So uh, things like Zika and chicken 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 gunya virus you just uh, had a stroke flash are you okay should i call for medical assistance dude i don't know how to pronounce that i, <laughs> I, I don't know i don't I, I think if we just breeze past it flash nobody would have picked up that you don't know how to pronounce it i think you yeah. just move past it you're fine uh they also looked at uh samliki forest virus which is related to by what <laughs> Samliki forest virus, which is related to chikungunya virus, <laughs> and uh, and then they also looked at a genetically distinct virus called Bunia <laughs> Buniamwera Buniamwera virus. Are you trying to cast a spell? That's what it sounds like. You're just making random names. I just, I even practice these. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God you practiced because I would hate to hurt this without you practicing. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're all named after locations. 
okay. in Africa on the African continent. Uh, Buniamwera is a town in western Uganda, and Chikungunya. I can't remember where it is from now, but it's it's part of a group of viruses called the Semliki forest forest viral complex. So there's this forest in Africa, obviously, where these viruses come from. So anyway, so what I have learned from this coronavirus thing is we shouldn't be naming diseases after locations. Yeah, depends who you're talking. Did the WHO say that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I mean. That's, I mean, you know, Middle East respiratory syndrome. There's a lot that are named after locations. Mm -hmm. I think my take on this, just very briefly, if we're going to tangent to this, is that because of the uh, the old blowhard in the U.S., you know, uh, he kind of ruined it because it's like if he, his using the name of the location to name the virus was purely done out of spite and was, xenophobia yeah. And all those other gross things that he has come to represent. So it's like now we can't. Now you can't do that because if you do, then you're just siding with the with the dumb dumb over there and, and sort of validating his position, which sucks because one guy now has like you know lots of places have been named after you know Marburg virus, the town I live in, you know, and it's not necessarily a bad no, thing. That's just what I call you, Flash. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's what they call me over here, the Marburg virus. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, that's just my thought on that. So anyway, so this is kind of interesting how Back they did mosquitoes. this. Yeah, yeah okay. how they did this. So they had this idea that, you know, this cream, which is antiviral in nature, it's we know it's safe for the use on the skin. So maybe we could use it for, for these uh, mosquito-borne viruses. So for two of the viruses, um, Zika and chikungunya, they were tested on samples of human skin. Thank you. Thank you. I'm getting better. Um, so they actually took small skin samples from 16 volunteers and then like kept them in healthy condition in the laboratory is how they phrase that. So I'm just imagining, you know, skin slices and Petri dishes or something like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so then they cut each of the samples in half and allowed both halves to be infected by the virus. So for each 16 people, there was two halves. Uh, and then both get the virus and then they apply the, the, the skin cream to one half um, after one hour. So at, give the virus, wait an hour, apply the skin cream to one half of the sample and leave the other one without the treatment. And then two days later, they measure how well the virus had, you know, replicated within right, the skin. The yeah. yeah. So for Zika virus, they found that the skin, the chunk of flesh that didn't receive the treatment contained over 70 times more virus than mm -hmm. the, the old skin chunk that had got the treatment. So there mm -hmm. was a noticeable difference. Um, and then similar for chikungunya, the skin that got the cream contained over, or sorry, the skin that didn't get the cream cream contained over 600 times more virus than the one that did. So both cases, um, yeah, the, the treated skin did not release uh, infectious virus. So meaning it, it shouldn't, you know, based on this, they're thinking that it should not have spread and caused disease in the body. So it limited it, like it limited it within the skin. Now, right, yeah. to me, that just says, well, it's not just the skin, like it's going into the blood. And once it's in the blood, you know, so who knows? Presumably this, 
and maybe we can get that. So presumably this cream, obviously, we said it's licensed for some types of cancers and genital warts, which is, you know, usually has a viral component to it. So presumably this cream has some sort of antiviral effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's blocking the spread of the virus from the, the site of inoculation, effectively. So, you know, yeah, mosquito bites, you apply the cream and that potentially stops the spread of the virus from that point. Is that the... Yeah, basically, you're you're trying. The idea is that you're containing it at that site of infection, at that puncture right. wound, and then therefore, it, like the virus never has a chance to to spread throughout the body and like gain gain hold in the body. Um, I mean, this is like a similar kind of similar, but like if you get uh, infected with AIDS, like if you're working with AIDS uh, in a in a lab and you so HIV, yeah. HIV, sorry. Uh, if you poke yourself with the needle that has it by accident, there's us- there's like a break break glass and emergency cabinet, you know, where you go there, rush there, and take a shit ton of antivirals, antivirals. right away, yeah. and then you can stop it from, you know, hopefully you can stop it from replicating and like getting a hold in the body, so you can actually kill it before it you know, takes over the whole body and then it's impossible to get rid of. Yeah. So this is kind of the same thing is that you, but this cream is like activating the immune system. So it's giving the immune system a cause to be like, well, Hey, come and come and get here. And this is what it, this is what the cream does is that it interacts with your immune system in order to, you know, like I said, boost it, increase it, whatever to fight off, you know, at that location. So it like calls the immune system to action at that location. Um, so, and yeah, it's on the skin. So that was with the skin samples. So they're taking this, you know, the fact that the the ones with the, with the cream had way less virus inside the skin cells and inside the, the skin sample uh, to mean that it won't spread. It shouldn't spread throughout the body. I'm just bringing up my own thought there of like, well, the virus, like the mosquito doesn't just go into the skin. Like it actually punctures into the bloodstream. So it, it, will it work? Um, just as well. But so then the other thing they did was they actually did uh, tests in mice. So they took uh, the three viruses that they tested in mice were Semlichiphorus, Chikungunya, and Buniamwera. Um, so yeah, so they were looking, yeah, and so they did this to understand whether the cream could actually stop the viruses from infecting the body and causing damage right. in the rest of the so mice were infected with mosquito bites one hour later half the mice had the cream applied to the bites so they put it on the area of the bite and the other half didn't two weeks after infection um the survival rate with the deadly semliki forest virus was uh zero percent for those that didn't get the cream so they all died uh compared to 65 percent survival for those that did get the cream uh, for chikungunya virus, which causes um, joint swelling and like arthritis in uh, in the joints, um, they looked at. So again, after two weeks, uh, same procedure. They looked at the joints of the mice to see um, how many had become infected, the extent at which they had been infected um, in the joints. Seventy percent of mice that did not receive the cream had virus in their ankle joints compared to 30 percent that did. So again, um, it worked. Uh, And mice that were treated, the joints that were infected had 90 times less virus um, 
than the ones that weren't. So even if they did have it in there, you know, they got the cream and they still had virus in their joints. It was less than, yeah. And then for the last one, the um, budium virus, which is a little genetically different from the other ones they looked at. So again, just to try and say like, okay, we got this one family like Zika, chikungunya, and Simlikia are all related. Let's look at one that's that's a little distant, not, not related. Um, so after infection, they found mice that didn't get the cream had up to 10,000 infectious virus particles per milliliter in their bloodstream compared to less than 100 infectious virus particle particles per milliliter in those that got the treatment. So overall, it looks like it worked. Um, the quote from the one of the authors of the paper is, it's too soon for us to recommend that people use this on their mosquito bites. Naturally, uh, further testing and development is needed to ensure safety and, you know, effectiveness for this purpose, yada, yada, yada. But it's a hopeful discovery um, that could, you know, potentially at least, you know, it might not cure, it might not totally prevent, but in areas where these viruses are prevalent, if you know that like, hey, it's a, I, I might have been bitten by a mosquito that has it, you just put the cream on and it helps your chances that anything's better than nothing. So. No, well, and so going back to the bit where you said about, you know, the virus, you know, the mosquitoes is obviously trying to get to a blood mill. So, but I know obviously a, there are obviously some tick-borne, tick, vector-borne diseases, mosquitoes or tick-borne diseases, where it is that direct ingestion of blood that's having an effect. But I also believe that some of them are caused by actually like the saliva agents that the mosquitoes inject into numb yeah. areas. So obviously as the, as the, you know, we don't feel the bite and then carry on feeding. So I wonder if that's where the cream, you know, if in these cases mm. the viruses are those sub viruses, then putting the cream on, you think would have an effect. But obviously, it, even it looks like once it gets into the body, this cream is having some sort of effect on lessening mm-hmm. the viral load or the extent of the disease. So yeah, and I guess it's got to be that it's just like you know, and the, the interesting thing to me too is that they waited an hour after the the mosquito bite or with the with the skin sample, the the artificial you know infection which I would think would be a long time, you know, I just imagine that like once a virus gets in the, in the blood or whatever, that it's just like, you know, my, the image in my head is that it's just like, you know, like, well, I think you've got lying around all to the body, but that's not really how it works. No. And I think there's that threshold because there's a, in the UK, we have a product, I think it's called first defense. So if you have those early signs of a common cold coming on, Mm Mm-hmm you know, you have the, the sniffles and a bit of a scratchy throat, you can take this and I think it, I've never used it. I believe it's a nasal spray and it's effectively an antiviral, you know, a, an antiviral to try and catch it at that stage. So I, I presume there is a point, a threshold by which if you can contain the virus to that point, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then obviously the body can cope with it or it doesn't show any clinical disease and that's fine. And then, so only over that threshold. So yeah, I, I, for me, it would be interesting what other time, you know, how far a time interval? Because obviously, if you get bitten by a mosquito, unless you've got herpes and this cream on <laughs> on your bedside table, um, an hour probably isn't enough to go get a prescription, go to the pharmacy. Yeah, so it'd be yeah. interesting to know, oh, actually, you can wait 10 hours, 15 hours, 24 yeah. hours, and still apply the cream and still lessen the effect. And, and to what effect that, you know, it's not a cure, but it, you know, certainly in areas where mosquito bites are prevalent. Yeah, you know most repellents aren't 100. percent So yeah. if you do get bitten, 
And it could be, and it, like they mentioned in this press release that I'm looking at here too, uh, is that it's, um, you know, obviously for people with underlying conditions as well, you could have the the cream on hand to sort of be like, hey, look, at you're already at risk, you know. And I'm imagining too that they would repurpose the, you know, may, maybe it's not the exact formulation, but like using this, like something similar to this cream or designing a specific cream for these, you know, mosquito borne infections, not just using, right, yeah. I don't know, could be. Um, but I think the time window too, I'm just thinking about it is that like, cause like I said, my image of like virus, like, you know, it's getting in and it just like shoots all over your body and stuff, but it's actually the virus has to live in a cell. So it's, it's going to infect the cells right around that puncture the mosquito puncture first yeah. right like because it's got to get in so it's going to go into the cells there and then it takes time for it to replicate inside that cell and then kill that cell and then burst out and start to infect other cells so that's really your window and it would depend on how quickly the virus you know replicates in a cell and each virus has a different a replication speed there's different factors that would come into play in terms of how quickly a virus, you know, can get into a cell, destroy that cell by, you know, replicating millions of times within it and then bursting out. So I guess that's kind of your window is that if you can keep it within the original cells that it's infected and then sort of get the immune system ready to go so that anything that comes out of that area, they just pick it off. So it doesn't affect the rest of it. That's it's the sound effects of immunity working right there. No, no expense paid on this machine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's the idea, um, which is cool. Yeah. Well, and you know, anything with a lot of these diseases, you know, as we said, to try and stop mosquito bites. Yeah. Good it's luck. Never, yeah. It's a never ending battle that we're never going to win. Um, so having something like that in the army. Yeah. It's an interesting one. And as we said that, you know, the mechanism of action and the, timing duration of action will be an interesting mm -hmm. you know does that then make it clinically useful yeah 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 and the idea that it's like broad spectrum you know because again it's not like a specific antiviral targeted right. for this disease it's just this is going to help your immune system wake up to the fact that there's something going on here and yeah. bring all the antiviral components of the immune system so you're really like you know using your own body to to get rid of it but you know you're just giving it sort of more of a guideline more of a guiding hey get over here bring everybody let's get this done pew 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 just like that so just, you can do the pew, like pew, pews. it's just the pronouncing of the diseases that you uh, you struggle with. well i'm gonna i'm gonna segue from uh viruses and transmissible disease to uh traffic jams traffic congestion the um, virus of the planet well you know, and, and people out there going, how, the, what, you know, possibly the lamest segue, and trust me, listeners, if you listen to some of the early episodes, they've been a lot lamer, especially once I talk about why I've segued this way. So traffic jams, traffic congestion, bane of most motorists' lives um, to one way or another. We know a lot about how they form. You know, it's been something that's been studied quite a lot. There's a, a lot of statistical modeling and computational mm -hmm. modeling that gets into that. Um, and obviously, we know a lot about how to, you know, stop them, you know, get cars out of the way that are broken down and, you know, just don't rubber neck at accidents. Um, but there's actually a new type of modeling that's been developed. Look at this. And the modeling is actually looking at how traffic congestion spreads by treating it as a disease. Oh, which it is. 
Exactly. Especially, you know, in this time. So we're not talking about coronavirus. We're going to talk about another disease. We're going to talk about traffic congestion. So normally um, a contagion model for a contagious disease uh, is normally used to predict the spread of disease. So in this case, they've used it for traffic ma- management. So uh, it's a joint joint venture between the University of California, Berkeley, and John Hopkins. Um, and basically, they, they started looking at how do we look at traffic management at the moment and then how could they leverage their expertise in um, disease areas to see if that had an effect so actually it's interesting 1933 is when the first description of traffic flow modeling um, was looked at so about 25 years after the model t so hopefully somebody wasn't stuck in traffic for 25 years and then thought of this um the guy by the you're welcome. Hey? I'm here. All, I'm here all day. I can't go anywhere else. I'm physically not allowed to go anywhere else. Um, a guy called Bruce Greenshields um, was um, this pioneer in 1933. What he did is he took a, a movie camera, film camcorder, cine camera, whatever the equivalent was in 33. Basically, took um, time lapse photography, so consecutive pics at constant intervals, basically to look at the flow of traffic. And basically, we've then moved on from there. So nowadays. The most advanced type of modeling that we use actually uses anonymous location data from mobile phones and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they run simulation models on that. And that's basically how it works. So somewhere in the cloud or in a data processing center, there's um, simulation modeling that goes on to look at how that moves. But actually, the, the computer power needed to do a lot of those modeling makes it really useless for real-time use. So... You know, a lot of people use Apple Maps or Google Maps or Waze for their traffic directions, and that that gives good real-time data based on users' data, and they use simplified algorithms to do that. Mm-hmm. Behind that, to predict that, there's huge, huge supercomputers. So what this, the hope of using this um, contagion model is to try and simplify that a little bit. So high level, the way the contagion model works is it works on an SIR approach. So susceptible, infected, and recovered model Mm -hmm. approach. So they studied this um, several cities, Sydney, Melbourne, New York City, Chicago, Montreal, and Paris. Um, And basically, if you take that SIR modeling, um, if you're an epidemiologist, so if you're studying disease, then you divide your population that you're looking at into three three distinct areas. So you would split them normally, if you're looking at disease, into... A population that's susceptible, mm-hmm. so coronavirus, global, um, the pop- the subsection that's then infected, and then the section that's then recovered. Right. So what these um, so I'm saying, and this has been published in um, Nature Communications this month, is they split the population to three using the SI model, but they they split it into free flowing traffic mm-hmm. or free flowing roads, congested links or roads and then what they deemed is recovered so roads that or links and they i I use links because in their paper they use the term links so links is roads and junctions and things and then recovered so obviously if you recover you know if there's been a traffic damage recovering it's not moving as quickly as it could but it is is moving Mm -hmm. so basically using that that model they can create what they call their reproductive number. So in epidemiology for disease, then it's how quickly an infection spreads. So in this case, it's how quickly congestion spreads. Um, and what they've what they've shown is actually they can use it to 
they can't use it like you would in as part of your Apple map. So you wouldn't, oh, I'm going from A to B, you look and it goes, oh, well, actually, don't take route one to A to B because that's screwed. Take route two or three. Um, it can be used that way. What it can do is it can help predict a lot and it can model the percentage of links or roads that would be affected. Um, so ultimately, the idea of this is for planning purposes. So it should be able to cut down for like city planners, city planners, um, and also then for other, other modeling. So maybe it's a quicker way of doing some quick and dirty modeling. And I've, I've used the term quick and dirty. They don't use that. You know, somebody's invested <laughs> a lot of time and effort into this and I've just distilled it down into one page of notes and called it quick and dirty. So my apologies. Um, but could you, and we talked about a threshold earlier with your earlier story about a threshold of disease. Can you keep the threshold of traffic congestion to a level where it's manageable? So traffic hmm. still moves, you know, it doesn't, you know, the trouble with traffic congestion is it breeds more congestion because people get furiated and they have an accident and that causes more congestion. So yeah. can you keep it below a threshold whereby at this point it's not having a negligible effect um, yeah. on other roads or links around? Um, and then the idea is that you could then actually use it to um, predict where bottlenecks occur, then remove those bottlenecks, obviously, for planning, um, but then also maybe change signaling times on road junctions or yeah. maybe change a stop sign into a roundabout or into a traffic light junction. Um, mm -hmm. But an interesting take on, um, you know, an attentive link here of disease, but trying to take something that's quite actually well understood. You know, we actually know high level how diseases spread you know mm -hmm. not talking about how it actually affects but how it spreads based on this sir model we've known that for a long time so now can we apply that model to other uses to give us you know a better understanding of things and so this for me was just an interesting one when i saw it of you know when i was trying to do some research looking for a story you know unrelated to coronavirus <laughs> and it's hard to find these days it is, yeah. I had to do quite a lot of digging, um, but I thought this was an interesting one. And you know, I imagine a lot of the epidemiologists involved in this are probably working on other stuff right now. Yeah. Um, but it'll be interesting to see going forward if if people like Apple and Google and whatever start building some of this into their um, their background, or whether it is just for city planners. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, one one that I just thought was interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a great example too of like taking an idea from one area of and putting it in another one, right? Like it's same to some extent with the last one we talked about too, using repurposing a drug for one thing to another thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, and we've talked about this how many times on this show, countless that that's, you know, that's where most of the research, great research comes from is this idea of taking things from other fields and putting them into the other. And this has been our case for why we need basic research. You know, we've been making that case since early April, 2017 as it turns out. Well, you know, if only people would listen to us earlier, Flash. Right. If only people would listen to us at all. Well, yeah, that would, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I've set, the, I've set the bar high there. And like, yeah, just <laughs> listen to us once. Um, and hopefully it'll spread like a virus. So. Yeah, we could model how, you know, how the podcast is spreading. Yeah, well, it seems like most people have been vaccinated against this podcast based on our <laughs> listenership. But, um, yeah, or the listeners are, are quarantining themselves because they're not passing it on. Yeah, that's a shot at you, listeners. Pass it on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to come and cough all over you. 
Yeah, no, that's really cool. I mean, and it's, it, it makes, it makes some sense that if you can, you know, you know, you want to kind of keep it moving, keep the track book moving and maybe it's not perfect, but it's, it would prevent it from getting worse. And so that idea of sort of like, that's like the idea of transmission in a disease. So it's like, yeah, okay, if you can slow down, like that's what we're all doing right now is trying to slow down the propagation of this disease. Yeah. And if you could slow down the propagation of a traffic jam, then yeah, overall people are going to be happier. Yeah. But maybe we just realize after this whole thing that everyone can work from home and, you know, there's only a section of the public that needs to work uh, not at home and they deserve to be paid more. <laughs> That's something we yeah. can learn too. <laughs> they, they they deserve to be paid way more and have more better benefits. Um, but yeah, so we won't need traffic jams and we won't have traffic jams and things like this. But no, it's interesting. I would be curious, like you said at the end there too, to see how it like where it actually gets applied. If it's going to be sort of like on a commercial end of like a, a ways or google maps or something like that if there's some kind of application there or if it's purely going to be like these are the roads that we're thinking of building and if we model some scenarios of traffic on there using this model yeah. where it work or similar areas stuff like that i just want to make sure that the listeners know that when he says uh, junction he means intersection and when he says roundabout he means a traffic circle signals traffic lights just a little thanks translation the, there for the rest of us that speak English. Well, no, and thanks for the translation because, uh, yeah, whenever I drive in the US, uh, I get totally freaked out by four-way stops. That is just a disaster waiting to happen. Oh, they're, they're the worst. They're the worst. Yeah. We have them in stick Canada too. Stick around about there or traffic circle, you know, if you're that way. Like, but around about is just so much easier. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We have four-way stops in Canada too, and it's the absolute worst. It makes no sense. And, yeah, it's – yeah. I'm with well, you on that you, one. You're also relying on people being decent human beings. Of well, I got here first, so I go, I go next. And I think what we've learned through this pandemic is most people are selfish out there, so we can't rely on other people. See, in Canada, it's the opposite problem. You get oh, people you are get, too nice. Yeah, you get these like <laughs> people arriving at the same time, and then everyone's in their car going, pointing, being like, "You go first, you go first. and the other person is going, "No, you go, you know, you go," and then both start to creep out because they're like, "Well, I guess I'm going to go because he's not going," and then you get the like. Er, 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 er. yeah both people you know not wanting to go or you get the situation where it's like i'm pulling up to the four-way stop clearly slowing down because i'm going to stop i'm not blowing through the the intersection you know, i'm slowing down but the person that could have made his turn or gone through waits till i've come to a complete stop and then goes and then i so it's just like it just slows everything down and yeah like in canada it's like i said it's the opposite it's people are too nice we're well that's Canada in a nutshell for you right yeah god yeah. i miss it <laughs> <laughs> all right what do we have next uh, uh, it's you next i believe and a great example that you've forgotten what you're talking about as it's going to be talking about memory right my memory story you planted, you pl you planted that as a little segue there didn't you? oh what do you <laughs> next i can't remember oh wait it's about memory oh, oh we'll never gosh. know for we'll never know the truth will we uh yeah no i found this one and you know memory stuff is always really interesting we've talked about some some memory stuff before and it's to me the the idea of how they can link 
you know, specific areas of the brain to memory is fascinating. Like there's also, there's lots of, you know, psychology studies where it's like, you know, false memories, how you can sort of implant an idea in somebody's head and they, they feel like they, they remember it, or there's, you know, uh, witness testimony and stuff. So we kind of have these, you know, things that are outside of neuroscience, but it's still memory, like, you know, but this story is really, it's the neuroscience of memory. So this is the really fascinating stuff for me. It's like what cells are doing what and how do how are memories stored and things like this. Because that to me just seems like some kind of metaphysical thing that we just don't understand. It's magic. Yeah, it's magic. right? Yeah, It's got to be. Um, so this story is about finding a sort of a new kind of memory. So for a while, we've known that uh, memories uh, are stored in the hippocampus, which is, oh God, if my lovely wife, Teresa, hears me and I get this wrong, it's going to, we're going to be social distanced for a while. Uh, I think the hippocampus is that it's located at the, no, that's the cerebellum is below. Anyway, it's in your brain. <laughs> it's a part of your brain. Um, yeah. so, okay. It's part of the brain. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's move on from that flash. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Um, and so there's a type of cells there that, uh, they're called place cells and they, um, store specific location memories. So this is the, you may have heard of this, um, these studies where they get a, a rat or a mouse or something to run through a maze and they're recording brain activity, uh, as they're learning the maze. And so they can see specific areas of the brain of the hippocampus light up these place cells. They light up as the animal is in parts of the maze. And every time it goes to that part of the maze, those cells light up, indicating that it's like the, those cells are activated based on the memory of that specific location. And then even, even more interesting is then at night when the animal is sleeping, they'll see those same areas lighting up in the same sequence. So this is how they got the idea that when you're sleeping, you're dreaming about things that you had learned and, and uh, it's a, yeah, it's a consolidation, right. right? So we know that we have these, these specific location cells. Um, but what they wanted to, what they wanted to understand is if there's like a more sort of abstract uh, type of memory that's not necessarily tied so much to location, but more to activity. So um, they use this in this paper and in the so you know press stuff that comes with it. They talk about, um, they use the example of a restaurant. So you go into a restaurant, uh, your place cells would be, if you had been in that restaurant before, then those would light up because they recognize that specific place. But potentially there's another section of memory that is activating just because of the activity that you're doing. So ordering an appetizer or, you know, looking at a menu or uh, ordering and eating dessert, things like this. So these are, they're tied to sort of the activity and not the place. So these would, in theory, light up in every restaurant that you went to because they're associated with that, with that other thing. Yeah, that situation. Yeah, so that's kind of the idea. So they wanted to, so in order to test it, they looked at measuring the activity of neurons in this what's called the ca1 region of the mouse hippocampus as mice repeatedly ran a four lap maze 
And at the end of every four laps, they were given a, a treat, a reward. So as they expected, they found that the place cells lit up when the mice reached certain points in the maze. So they, they had these memories of specific locations within the maze. But they also found that there was another set of cells that were activated during one of the four laps, but not the others. So about 30% of the neurons in this CA1 region appeared to be evolved, involved in creating this event memory. They're calling it the event code of the memory. So yeah, what they were seeing, what they believe they were seeing is that they were witnessing, um, there was the cells in the hippocampus that were, you know, activating to space and location, but also another group that were activating or concerned with this discrete chunk of experience. So for example, lap one, lap two, lap three, and there would be these different cells that would go for that sort of event rather than the specific right. location. So then to kind of tease it out even further, they then trained the mice to run a square maze, a square shaped maze on day one, and then a circular maze on day two. Um, four laps every time, again, with getting a treat after the, after the fourth lap. And so here they found that the place cells, so the ones that are, are memorizing location, specific location, changed in accordance with either the square or the circle maze. So those were still working in the same way. There's cells that were yeah. specifically getting the memory of, oh, this is the circle maze. Oh, this is the, the square maze. And, and they found that the same sets of lap-specific cells were activated during each of the four laps, regardless of the shape of the track. So again, they had a group of cells that were like, hey, this is me doing lap one. This is what happens when I do lap one. This is what happens lap two, three, four, in anticipation of the of the reward, right? Um, and on top of that, they found that the lap encoding cells, so the sort of event encoding cells, the activity also remained consistent if the laps were randomly shortened or lengthened. So even if the lap length was longer, um, they still had the one, this is lap one, this is lap two, this is, you know, right. so they still had that ability to get that memory. Um, and in the new spatial, so yeah, and they also activated the same way in the new spatial location. So circle versus square. They maintain, the, the cells maintain their coding for lap number. So yeah, the, the cells that were associated with lap one, um, in the square maze were the same ones that were associated in the circle maze. So they weren't tied to um, location. So it was, it was totally a different set of cells that was looking at this different sort of memory, this different sort of event rather than the location. Um, and then finally, they, did, they used a technique called optogenetics, which we may have talked about on this paper, but basically, or on this podcast, Basically, what you can do is you can put a special virus, basically, that you've engineered uh, into certain cells of the brain. And then by shining a, a UV light on it, it activates that virus. Um, and the virus then deactivates neurotransmitters in that region of the brain. So basically, you can shut off an area of the brain. And when they did this, so they inhibited the sensory input from a part of the brain called the medial 
entorenal cortex, or the MEC, the lap encoding memories didn't occur. So they were able to turn off that lap encoding memory. Um, so kind of giving a, a more a better idea of where spatially this is going on in the brain. Wow, yeah. yeah. Um, so their conclusion is that they found like two mutually and independently manipulatable codes for memory, the sort of place memory and the event memory. Um, one is dealing with uh, continuous changes to location, time, and sensory input, while the other organizes an overall experience into smaller chunks that fit into known categories. So going back to the restaurant example, this would be like your appetizer, entree, dessert category. Different sort of memory cells encoding for these different experiences, these different events kind of thing. So according to Susumu Tong. Tongawa, a professor of biology at neuros, uh, at uh, MIT, who conducted the study, his quote is, we believe that both types of hippocampal, hippocampal codes are useful and both are important. If we want to remember all the details of what happened in a specific experience, moment to moment changes that occurred, then the continuous monitoring is effective. But on the other hand, when we have a longer experience, if you put it into chunks and remember the abstract order of the abstract chunks, that's more effective than monitoring this long-term, this long process of continuous changes. So that's kind of the the more scientific so more way of doing of explaining it all. And then finally, they think that this might also be involved in a process called transfer learning, which I imagine is a something that they study in psychology and a way in which people learn. And basically this is a type of learning that allows you to take knowledge um, that you've learned somewhere else and have it to help you interpret new experiences or learn new things. Right. And that's what I was going to ask. What, what do they see the knock on effect of this learning be? Yeah. And that's, you know, and that, and that makes sense. Yeah. And also links to what we were talking about taking, how you can take things from one area and apply them to another so this might be directly, you know, how the brain does that in terms of learning new things. It's quite, it always amazes me when, and I know we've talked about this one, obviously, you know, your trees are works and so just how they work through these. To me, the brain is, and we joke, but it's just a box of magic. God knows how it all works up there yeah. and how one region, how they track through things like this is just incredible to me. Well, and, and, and that's the thing, you know, like when you think about, kind of what I was trying to get at when I was rambling on at the beginning of the story of like how fascinating this is of like, how is a memory stored? Like, what is that data in terms of, you know, like in a computer, it's ones and zeros, it's bits and bytes, you know, uh, binary code, but what is it in the brain? Like what, you know, and basically we don't really know what it is yet, like what that hard imprint is, but this just shows actually how, kind of crude, maybe crude is the wrong word, but simple, the methods we have for looking at the brain are, where basically they're just, we're, we're looking at this region turns on, this one doesn't. Yeah. And it's clever. It's very, I find the, the experiments in this um, area to be very cleverly designed, you know, because if you know that, okay, we can look for regions of the brain that are lighting up or not, how do we design an experiment that would tease out these two yeah. areas of memory. And that's, you know, when you think of it, it the, the maze running thing that we just described, 
it again, it sounds very simple. It's a very simple, sort of elegant, but but elegant design of okay, well, we can by changing the type of maze or by you know giving them this maze that they have to run, we can isolate the the place cells. But then by having this four lap discrete system where they get they have to know that they get a treat after four laps not just randomly you know then yeah. it gives you regardless this regardless of the shape of that lap or yeah exactly like that. Yeah. then it gives you this you can look for what areas might be lighting up in accordance only with that so kudos to the neuroscientists and mm -hmm. i think like this is you know I, i've talked i talk about this a lot with Teresa because she does this behavioral neuroscience work and there's always this you know with most with any scientific field, there's always a, a tendency to want to use the fancy techniques, you know, like we mentioned this optogenetics thing, which is really cool and it's useful for doing certain things, but there's always this, oh, what do we, we use brain imaging or brain scans or, you know, all these crazy things to see what's going on when really you need this sort of, you can take all the pictures of the brain you want, but if it's not correlated to something that's actually going on, you know, some behavior that the, that the animal or, you know, what, or whatever is doing, then really, what is it telling you? So you really need these like well-designed, you know, behavioral experiments that allow you to then say, okay, this is what they're doing. What's happening in the brain. How can we tease oh, out yeah. that noise? Cause the brain is just, you know, flurry of activity all the time. So I just, I really like that one. And I really like, like the idea of what is memory and where is it stored and how is it stored and, you know, so that's me tipping my hat to the neuroscientists, the eggheads in the lab. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I will remember you. This time, hopefully. Well, and interesting, so we touch on brain scans and things there, which takes me into uh, my next, and this is only a short, short uh, feature for today. So um, dogs' noses. Mm -hmm. I've heard of them. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, you know, up there in terms of the life of Brian with otter snipes and badger ears for snacks uh, in some parts of the country. But yeah, dogs' noses. By all accounts, and I didn't, didn't realise this, there's been a whole field of research for quite a while to try and work out why is a dog's nose wet and cold? Hmm. Um, so it turns out it's not just for sniffing smells. So... For a long time, it's just been thought that a dog's nose is is wet because it helps capture aroma particles, yeah. and then that helps them um, sniff things out. And as we all know, they have a much better sense of smell than than humans do. Um, but actually, there's been some work done that uh, shows that actually uh, it's not just smells that they they sense; they can also sense heat huh. through their nose. Um, so this is a collaboration between. You, but... Well. You know, you're pretty hot stuff, Flash. So, you know, why wouldn't they? Um, so this is a collaboration between uh, Lund University in Sweden and Itavos uh, Lorand University in Hungary. Listen to that pronunciation. Um, oh, good. Yeah. Oh, trust me, Flash. When you were up your pronunciations earlier, I made sure that I spelled those out phonetically so I could get it right. Um, so the, the tip of the dog's nose is called the uh, rhinorarium. Makes sense. Uh, and it's filled with, yeah, filled with lots and lots of nerves. Again, makes sense. Um, but actually what they've discovered is actually they can sense heat and actually from a distance. And actually it's 
the nearest thing it's akin to would be like thermoreceptors in our skin, human skin. You know, obviously, you know, you hold your hand to a fire and you feel the warmth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, effectively, a dog's nose can can do that for them. Well, I mean, technically, my so, nose can do that too. Well, if I hold you close enough, yeah, to it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so these the two universities conducted a series of experiments to see um, if the dogs could detect heat, um, and they think that actually, evolutionary wise, this probably came from the fact of them being part of. Obviously, you know, being able to sense and smell prey, but also once they got up close, using heat to sense where that prey was. Mm-hmm. So um, what they did is they took three dogs, um, Kevin, Delphi, and Charlie were the three dogs' names. Uh, and actually one of the dogs was the um, dog of the lead researcher. Uh, and they picked out what they did is they trained these dogs to start with to pick out objects that were around about 12 degrees Celsius hotter than the room temperature. Mm. So they got, you know, got them used to, okay, this is hot and you can sense this. Then what they did is they moved the objects around, moved them away, but then they also covered them. So there was no, you know, optically they couldn't yeah, sense where it were and they moved them no around. Visual. Yeah. Um, and what they discovered is the dogs could still sense them. I'm assuming they eliminated scent too. Well, I think part of the covering was also to deaden deaden the scent. Um, and then what they did is, um, so that was done at the Swedish part of the university. The Hungarian part actually then scanned three dogs um, to try and highlight the part of the brain um, connected with the nose, which is in dogs actually really well known because the scent smell. But actually what they found was actually that part of the brain also lit up when the dogs were exposed to a warm object. Hmm. Um, so by all accounts, this isn't unique just to, to dogs. Some types of snakes and beetles and uh, vampire bats use heat detection in a similar way to find prey or um, to be aware of predators potentially. Um, but actually, as with all good science, it's brilliantly done the science, what the hell is the use of it? Well, actually what they're saying is there are some dog breeds that are bred now not to have cold, wet noses because owners don't like it when they come to sniff their butt or whatever. Um, but actually, for certain types of breeds, this would be really important. Obviously, if you're using dogs for search and rescue and things, mm-hmm. then having a dog that has a cold, wet nose, this could be um, useful. So actually, the now the next stage of this is looking at could you, as well as training search and rescue dogs just to sense scent, sense smell can we, and track on smell can we manipulate could you also train to have better to also noses? exactly could you also train dogs to have better heat seeking noses well i'm not even talking about train um, i'm talking about like manipulate either breed it or get in there with some well, crisper yeah, exactly yeah yeah so that's what they're saying so actually then you would select breeds for search and rescue that a have cold wet noses but also within that subset of breeding you would select breeding for that trait yeah, yeah. so you actively promote that trait of having a cold wet nose um yeah so yeah just a as i said a little small one but an interesting one i thought of when i kept seeing all these pictures of dogs noses like shoved up at the camera, I said, what on earth is this article trying to get me to read uh, and there you go so yeah heat seeking heat seeking beagle hands that's what we need yeah um did they so they did the brain scans to show the brain activity was lighting up in the same region when they were exposed to the heat right so it's the same region if you give them a smell 
then that region of the brain heats up. So it, it, they know that region of the brain is linked to the nose, the nasal nerves. Yeah. yeah the nose. Yeah. Um, and then when they put a, a heat object, so they, it's not, it's not long range. So they, they think around about one and a half, two meters is probably the limit of detection. Yeah. 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 Um, so it's not massive, but what they're, what they're potentially saying is actually like for the search and rescue dogs, um, avalanche detection yeah or not yeah, avalanche yeah. detection dogs that are avalanche deployed rescue. in avalanche regions yeah um because by all accounts the cold the colder it is the the smell can be deadened down quite a lot yeah. so actually then by using just the heat yeah yeah that might uh, i could see in like landslides storms. earthquakes that's what i was thinking all that kind of stuff too um yeah i was gonna say they could i wonder if they if you looked at you know sort of heat receptor cells that we've identified in these other animals like you said vampire bats snakes and stuff like that and did like a cell cell comparison to see if it's the same right. you know because that would be the other line of evidence that would show that this really is a, a heat detection thing if there's this sort of similar you know you look at the cells under the microscope and they're designed to do different things right so the the, the smell cells have a different shape and different function and all that same with right, these heat yeah. ones. So I wonder if you did like a comparison of those across the animal kingdom, how similar they would be, or if we would find that they're using different, you know, cell designs to do this. Like evolution has made this this ability in different ways. That would be interesting. And um, relatives of the dog, like do the, how, how strong is it in wolves? Um, well, so that's an interesting one. So one of the things that they speculate at the end of this um paper so it's published in nature last month is um actually what they've started to look at and they haven't published on this yet they just started to look at it is actually in regions where there are a lot of wild dogs mm. a lot of the prey animals so sheep and mountain goats whatever actually have a lot of insulation probably more insulation than they would need for that region typically so part of the speculation is have they got that insulation to try and keep their heat in, to try mm. and limit the heat source that then the wild canids yeah. can't detect. Or even like snakes or what, you know, anything else that would be yeah. using that to, yeah, that's yeah. interesting to think of it from the, from the prey side, what adaptation yeah. might be to, to counter that. Because I was yeah. thinking of like, you know, like a dog or a wolf or, you know, wolves, not so much because they're really hunting, but like you could see like a dog or an early ancestor of a dog that's like rooting around in the ground for little weasels or, you know, something like that. And it's like, so you can't really see anything. You're in the dirt. So maybe smell isn't really, you know, good there, but you can get heat as it's like, am I close to the burrow? Am I not? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah interesting well and also there's obviously a lot of use now for dogs for like medical diagnostics so um you know epilepsy detection dogs and you know diabetes cancer dogs sniffing and dogs. Can sense and cancer sniffing dogs so there's been a chain of thought i know with cancer the cancer dogs there is and i've not looked at the others but i know for cancer dogs there is a specific chemical chain that they think these dogs are smelling and that's what they are training them on mm-hmm. But I know in some cases they haven't identified what it is the dog actually can smell as a tech. So I wonder, I, and this isn't in the paper, this is me just making shit up now. <laughs> I wonder if that's another element we could look at, though, you know, fever detection dogs or, you know, those small changes in how how sensitive is that note? Yeah. 
But see, that's what I don't get, like, with the with the dogs for diagnostics. And obviously, there's a reason to do it if people are doing it. But I'm always just like, couldn't we build our own sensor that would be more Well, they have done it for um, sensitive? cancer, haven't they? There's a there's a breathalyzer that basically can detect, like, 20 different cancers. Yeah. Um, still in the lab. Yeah. You know, it's not in commercial use yet. But so, yeah, they're always looking down. But, yeah, the dog's nose is just way more sensitive. There's an interesting one, too, just a total different tangent that I just thought of uh, is, and maybe we can talk about this on another episode, but uh, looking at the eye and eye movement, subtle eye movement can diagnose stroke, a bunch of other different neural psychological disorders to uh, like a really high precision. Um, And so they even have, they're starting with uh, these little cameras or whatever that will be in a, in an ambulance. So someone that's being taken to the hospital, they can like take a screen thing of their eye and be like, oh yeah, this person's having a stroke when there would be no other, yeah. you know. So maybe it's something like that is that you look at the dog nose and say, how can we use this design to make our own thing? I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, one to one to watch. Right? I thought it was just, you know, it made me smile when I read it and anything that makes me smile at moment when I read it is a good thing. So, um, yeah, there you go. Flash, you're going to wrap up with the last story today, which I think is an important one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, despite the the, uh, advice of places like the American Psychological Association and other, you know, nerds in the lab telling us that we shouldn't um, use alcohol, well, and other substances, but alcohol, to uh, help us get through the stress of isolation and whatnot. I know that that's what people are doing and it's okay. I'm not, I'm not here to. You're not, you're, you're not out there going through people's trash cans. Are you for like, Oh, they've been drinking quite a lot this week. No. Going through the recycling bins. I just know the types of people that I hang out with and the type of person that I am. And I'm assuming <laughs> that everyone is like that. <laughs> It's a big assumption, but in this case, one that on my limited experience is pretty spot on. Yeah. So we're not here to judge and say, you know, that's good. That's not that clear. We're not yeah. here to judge. Um, in fact, we would actively encourage listening with a beverage of an alcoholic nature in hand, I mean, as we often so record. Yeah, with such I was a just going to say that's often how we're doing this. So, hey, <laughs> you should too. Uh, but no, so this was a study about a what they termed a well-known hangover drug. And I had never heard of this hangover drug. And as someone that's experienced many the hangover, I thought I would be the guy to know. Um, so there's this compound called, <laughs> wait for this pronunciation, oh, here we go. dihydromyristin. We're just going to go with DHM. Uh, it's an over-the-counter herbal remedy or herbal, uh, and it soothes pounding alcohol-related headaches. So this thing has been known uh, in Southeast Asia. This compound has been known in Southeast Asia for over 500 years. It's been used to um, treat liver ailments. Uh, it's derived okay. from the fruit of the from the Japanese raisin tree, known as Hovina dulcis, uh, it's found in Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, and now it's commercially grown. 
Um, but no one really knew how it worked, like what it was actually doing. Um, so that was sort of the goal of this research. It's like we know that it works for alcohol-related headaches, hangovers, and that people have been using it uh, for 500 years, but we didn't really know how it works. And this is going to be my, my moment to uh, talk about herbal remedies and how, because in the past I've shit on them a lot, uh, as I think you should. Uh, because most of them don't get this kind of treatment where people say, oh, let's actually try and see how it works. Um, so uh, we, they found, well, they, what they already knew was that it helps metabolize alcohol faster. Um, and what they witnessed was that, <coughs> or what they report, sorry, <coughs> excuse me, is that it activates a cascade of mechanisms. <coughs> Oh. oh, coronavirus takes another victim. <laughs> yeah, you guys will get to hear. I'll podcast my journey for through coronavirus. Um, activates a cascade of mechanisms that erase alcohol from the body very, very quickly. That's according to one of the study authors. So there's this cascade of metabolic changes that don't just help with headaches, but they're they found that it might also help with the liver. So their idea is that it could be useful as a dietary supplement that deals not just with the immediate neg negative consequences of alcohol, but also some of the long-term effects as well. And this is mainly cirrhosis of the liver. So alcohol-related liver disease, um, the liver is where alcohol is processed. So this is not surprising, but alcohol-related liver disease, I think counts for like half of all cases of cirrhosis of the liver in the U.S., um, you can look at all the stats of the bad things that alcohol does to your body. Um, so to look at, to get an idea of what, what, uh, might be happening here, they used mice. So this is also a caveat of it's a herbal, it's a herbal remedy, which I've shit on in the past. And we need to, you know, understand these things better rather than just taking them because they're natural and people have been doing it for hundreds of years. Like that's not a good enough reason. Um, and we'll just say that this is a mouse study. So caveats there as well. We don't know, you know, it's not always translatable mice to humans. But what they did was they fed uh, 36 mice a daily diet of alcohol for two months. And grad sign me up for that. Study. Yeah, exactly. And gradually increasing the doses so that thirty percent of their total food intake uh, for an average of thirty nine point four grams per kilogram of ethanol per day per mouse. So getting up there in terms of how much how much booze these <laughs> these mice are drinking. Um, and then they assess the livers for injury and markers of stress. So. That was from the press release, so I had to go into the actual paper to get a better idea of the design because I was like, did they give all of them the, you know, what were the controls? And basically, they did have controls where it's like you either got um, water and no alcohol, so sort of just a normal mouse. You either got, uh, and then one was alcohol and a saline injection. Uh, and then the other group was alcohol and your know, five milligram dose or something like that of this DHM and then alcohol and a 10 milligram dose of the DHM. So a higher dose. And they were getting daily doses of this DHM uh, chemical uh, compound. 
Um, and so what they found was that the DHM triggered the liver to produce more ethanol, what, what they called ethanol gobbling enzymes, um, including alcohol dehydrogenase, dehydrogenase. Yeah, and acetyl, acetylaldehyde dehydrogenase, ALDH. Um, there was boosted uh, efficiency of both of those dehydrogenases, which enabled the enzymes to convert ethanol into simpler forms that the body can get rid of easier. Uh, there was reduced uh, fat accumulation in liver tissue, uh, heavy doses of alcohol. Yeah, so they, this is important because heavy doses of alcohol um, affect the liver's metabolism by an accumulation of fat. Uh, and then there's increased stress, uh, which eventually progresses to liver disease. Um, and then they also found reduced inflammatory uh, cells, the cytokines, in the livers. So excessive alcohol can lead to the release of these cytokines in the liver, which, again, uh, leads to cell damage and then cirrhosis and even in some damage in other organs associated with it. So, yeah, it's early days, but the idea is that this could be a when taken you know sort of daily as a as a like i said a diet supplement or something like this it's basically just going to help your liver process alcohol cope, yeah, cope with the beating that you're putting on your liver um and so of course the uh you know i'm reading this and being like oh yeah this is just going to be alcoholics and everyone else all the binge drinkers and everything out there just be great great sign me up i don't want to change my lifestyle forget that give me the pill that yeah exactly just give it take a yeah, pill give me the yeah. pill that just like you know eliminates the negative effects from my lifestyle um but obviously that's not what they want uh out of this research it would be more for here's what they said from the um from the press release binge drinkers could use DHM for its liver protection properties extending the function of the organ long enough for the person to get help and stop their bad drinking habit Okay. Right. So uh, that's going to happen. Well, yeah. So it, the question I was going to ask you, so, and you, you've answered it there is, is this something you, you wake up in the morning? Oh God, I feel so rough. What a night. And you take this, but no, it sounds like something that you proactively are taking. Yeah. Well, for the, that's for the, that's for these potential long-term uh, effects. And again, they just, they just did it in mice and only 36 mice. So it's not even really that big of a, of a, sample size right. um and that's 36 mice across all the control groups so each group is actually quite smaller, smaller um yeah. but yeah but for the you know the what you'd call the acute effects like the hangover um i mean people have been taking this for a while and it's like i said an over-the-counter herbal remedy so people have known about it and i guess we know that it has some act like it it act it activates the enzymes in the liver that re reduce um right and then that was so. going to be the second discussion or question was so it's activating so it's not it's not a pro drug in that it's getting metabolized itself into the drug so what i was thinking of like the um the japanese for instance don't have the ability to make alcohol dehydrogenase which is why they, they process alcohol in a different way, in a slower way. So yeah. actually when you see a lot of Japanese people drink, they go red very quickly because 
they can't process alcohol as quickly because they don't have so is this you said this drug works on multiple pathways so a does this drug would that work do we think in that population i don't know the first question and then the second presumably if they cannot create alcohol dehydrogenase this drug isn't going to help them so does this drug then get metabolized into mm -hmm. alcohol dehydrogenase to help them yeah 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 I'm going to guess not. I don't think point. so. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, some of it, it, like it's still, like I said, early days with this, with this kind of thing. Um, so here's a quote uh, from one of the study co-authors. Uh, we know DHM, we know what DHM is doing and how it's doing it mechanically, activating a cascade of energy regulating mechanisms that speed metabolism of ethanol and its byproducts. Okay. So, so it sounds like it's kickstarting the liver to, yeah. hey, go deal with this. Yeah. Well, I know I watched a documentary years ago now, and it was it was like the secrets behind the Iron Curtain or something. So there were several parts to it, but and it was talking about research that went on in the Soviet mm -hmm. Union, and part of it I think we touched on before was around bacteriophage, so the um, organisms that actually infect bacteria with viruses and they use that in genetic engineering stuff now and they're using that potentially as a replacement for some types of antibiotics anyway side note the other part of the documentary was um had the kgb actually discovered a hangover preventing drug to allow their spies to go out and basically mingle and get drunk with you know americans yeah. and diplomats at a high level but get really drunk but then take this drug so that they don't have the hangover and therefore they can keep on drinking yeah um and and get through it and, and it was sort of debunked is no you know if russia had this they certainly would have made it available because it would be a billion dollar selling yeah. drug. yeah 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 overnight yeah and so it sounds like this is like it's not like it's not uh prophylactic in the sense that you like right. take it before you go out drinking and then you're not going to, it sounds like it's like you drank, you're dealing with a hangover. You take this and it can help lessen the effect. You know, it'd be like taking the aspirin the next morning or something like that. Cause it's, they mentioned something here in this, in this paper too, about how it's like the, the amount of time that it takes your body to metabolize alcohol. Like it's like one, one hour per drink. So if you've gone out and had all these drinks, it's going to take hours for that to metabolize. And therefore all of these, um, you know, metabolites, all of the things that alcohol is being broken down into and the chemicals or the uh, enzymes that do that breaking down are floating around your body for hours and hours and hours. And that's what's causing this hangover. So if you have a um, this drug that sort of, speeds up speeds the liver of like getting up. rid of all of this stuff then it's gonna it's gonna reduce that hangover and then in turn there's long-term effects to that that are good for your liver which just makes sense because you're just right. you're getting rid of yeah, all this yeah. you know all of, all of this stuff i yeah it's interesting it's one of those things that you know obviously the research community the medical community is going <laughs> to do it as like no this would be to help people so that like as they're becoming not as they're getting into treatment for alcoholism they're not going to die on the way whereas yeah, like not to keep the rest going, yeah. of the population views this as oh hey i'm gonna i, I can keep drinking this is gonna be great yeah, for my hangover when i'm 
It's the drinker's version of Viagra. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I remember years ago reading um, in one of the, you know. I wonder where that line was going for a minute. I remember years ago taking Viagra and I still have the <laughs> erection now. Yeah, you think I should see a doctor about that? <laughs> um, no, it was, uh, I can't read Scientific American or one of these magazines, but they were talking about things like this, the hangover cure, the miracle thing, and there was a, I don't know if they were working on it or it was like one of these thought experiment things where they're like, what, what if you had a drug that you could drink and get drunk and be in that inebriated state, whatever, and then pop this pill that would clean up all of that stuff out of your body within a matter of, you know, X amount of time. And then you're just fine. You're like sober again yeah. or vice versa. You have a pill that, very specifically induces the effects of inebriation so it's like a, a simulated drunk you're still drunk but it's not from alcohol but it's the exact same feeling but you take this and then it wears off in like three hours as opposed to 24 hours that it takes to deal with a binge you know and it's like would that be the same like would people if you gave people the two options would they do that or would they continue with drinking? And the idea is like, obviously, there's a cultural uh, factor that goes into drinking behavior and the social factor of, you know, being actually being at a party and consuming the beer and doing this stuff rather than like you show up at the party, pop the pill, you're drunk instantly. And then four <laughs> hours later, you're like, eh, well, we're off. I can go. I can yeah, drive home now or whatever, you know, like that to me seems weird. But then when I think about that, I'm like, it's equally weird that I would be like, no, I would prefer to drink copious amounts of beer over, <laughs> over an evening to achieve the same effect of getting drunk or whatever, you know, the feelings that I'm getting and then deal with it. Like yeah. what's weirder. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, and I always remember when I was doing sort of A levels and things, people were saying then that effectively, you know, alcohol wouldn't get licensed. If it was a drug newly discovered and coming to the market, it wouldn't get a license for sale now because it is so dangerous yeah. and um so but it's just worked, you know, because it's part of our culture. Grandfathering. And, uh, yeah, it you know, it's just routine. Oh, yeah, of course you'd go out and incapacitate yourself through drink on a regular basis. Yeah. That in a sense when you were when we were talking about the the Russian bits and popping a pill and stuff, um, it made me think, so a friend sent me this week, I'm a James Bond fan, and a, a friend had kindly um, given me a James Bond box set. And then he also sent me a, a poster that was made um, from a publication that was in the British Medical Journal. I just looked it up um, now what he sent me. It doesn't have the date and publication on there, but basically it was, um, the title was basically, does James Bond like his martini shaken and not stirred? Because that's the only way he can hold it because he's basically got a cerebellar tremor through all the alcohol <laughs> he's drunk over the years. So then it's a load of Bond facts of actually Bond has only had 12 and a half alcohol-free days for the 87 and a half days he's been able to drink. And the, those, those 12 and a half days are basically because he's either been in hospital, unconscious, in rehab, or in incarceration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's the only reason he's not drunk. Um, they've worked out that he drinks like 92 units of alcohol per week, <laughs> um, which in the UK would put him like four times over the recommended limit. He'd be like a category three alcoholic. Um, 
yeah, brilliant little. Just a, it's just like a quick point. Technically, through alcohol, what I found through alcohol, he should be dead at the age of fifty six. Yeah. and it's like he's also a spy that's getting shot at and poisoned on a regular basis. I'm sure he, you know his average life expense would be a lot less than that. But um, yeah, just made me think of it when we think of popping pills to <laughs> to cure martini induced hangovers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, it's there's a lot of small sample size mouse study, but yeah. It, it made my ears perk up at the the headache thing, you know. I don't uh, I don't get the massive hangers that I, I did when I was a, a younger man. I tend to be a bit more responsible, but every once in a while, you know, you wake up a little crusty with that with that headache, and something like this would be usually when you usually when you come to visit me. <laughs> class, to be honest, I think those are the worst hangers. <laughs> Let's be real. That's recently, true. that's true. We yeah. get so used to social distancing that when we finally do get together, it's it's a bit of a Exactly. Bit of a party. Exactly. Well, so speaking of that, should we summarise where Let's we've been it. on this uh, excursion today? So, uh, we, and you just mentioned it there. So, Flash, you and I essentially have been socially distancing for, well, as you mentioned, three yeah. years. So, um, go us, effectively. Um, good news: if you have herpes, uh, you might not get Zika. <laughs> so, you know, keep rubbing that cream in, um, and hope for the best. Um, ironically, we almost forgot our story on memory cells. I say we, you, but you know, I'll, I'll share the blame with you on that one. Um, and fourthly, and obviously, you know, we don't have lawyers, so I'll put a caveat around this, but keep drinking because the cure is on the way. That's basically <laughs> what you told us, Flash. Yeah, so, we do um, need a, a quick note from the uh, Two Bradview legal department that we do not condone a, <laughs> abuse, of, abuse of alcohol and always enjoy responsibly. Drink yeah. responsibly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's where we've been today. Uh, Flash and I. I know we're very posh now and we, we give this out at the start, but in case people have battled through this episode, if they want to get in touch with the show, they can do so on Twitter or on Instagram, uh, at 2 brad for you You can touch with me, Brooke Brad, uh, at Bradley W. Hayes. Flash, if they want to hit you up, stalk you, get in touch, what do they do? Uh, at B. Van Paradon. I'm open to all of that. Uh, so, yeah, listeners, we do this for you. Um, Flash, it's been... Amazing as always. I've actually listeners hopefully won't notice any difference, but we've actually used a new platform today, and I think it's worked really well. So uh, I have to tip my hat to Flash because he's the he's the brain channel of this. I literally just rock up and press record on whatever device he tells me to press record. It's better on. that way. Um, it, but it is <laughs> for everyone. Um, listeners, I will say, please stay safe. As I said before, you know, listen to the advice being given. We can't afford to lose any of you. So um, stay safe, stay well for you, your families. Flash, you stay well, stay safe. Right back at you, my friend. And uh, yeah, let's do this again soon. Same joke, even if nobody heard it except you. Why not? There are some comedians that make a 25 year career out of reusing the same joke, and it wasn't even funny 25 years ago. Yeah, well, I have something called integrity, my friend. Well, I've got something called a mortgage to pay. So, <laughs> what? Don't be banking on the podcast for that. Well, yeah, I've noted. Yeah, I've, I've yet to see any checks come in. Me too. Feather it's only been checks going out. Yeah. <laughs>